Hello, I'm David Hughes and this is Rogue Commentary, the podcast that brings you brand new audio commentaries for interesting movies by the people who made them. This episode is sponsored by boutique Blu-ray label Plumeria Pictures. Find them at plumeriapics.co.uk and use code ROGUE10 at checkout to get 10% off store-wide. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Hayley Shaw, co-screenwriter of Call Jane, Carol director Phyllis Nagy's underappreciated 2022 film about the Janes, the underground group that gave Chicago women access to abortions in the pre-Roe v. Wade years. Needless to say, the film, which stars Elizabeth Banks, Sigourney Weaver, Chris Messina and Kate Mara, took on a horrible new resonance when the Supreme Court effectively overturned Roe v. Wade in June 2022. I really enjoyed Call Jane, but I was particularly struck by the clever construction of the screenplay, which is why I wanted Haley to walk us through it. If you haven't seen the film, I urge you to track it down and then come back and listen to hear how development took shape and the decisions that informed its gestation across 28 screenplay drafts. As always, you can listen like this as a podcast or, for best results, cue it up to the film, skipping the logos and pressing play on the first frame of film. Ready to play? Three, two, one, play. Hi, I'm Haley. I'm one of the writers of Call Jane. And this is obviously the opening scene, which I really love because I think it sets the tone for where we start Joy's journey. And um, which is being the wife and mother of an attorney who's just been made partner in his prestigious law firm. And I think this is the first time, obviously, we've seen her, but also where we get a sense that she's kind of in it, but not of it. She is, uh, I think she feels somewhat separate from what's going on in her husband's world. And, um, She's curious and interested in what's outside, which, as you can see, is the 1968 protests that happened around um, the war. So what's interesting to me about this first scene is um, the protests that were going on at the time were something that I think for Joy were both alienating in that they were foreign to her, but also very intriguing. And I think we get the the very, this is the first time we get the sense that she wants to know what's going, what something that's bigger than the world that she revolves in, which is a very small, protected suburban cul-de-sac life. And so what we, what we saw with the, the protester who was kind of being beaten by one of the police officers was that kind of fear like, oh my God, this could be our children. Look how young they are. But it was also um, 
It was actually when when it was written, it was really intended to not be scary. The only scary part was supposed to be the police, not, you know, not any protesters who were trying to trespass or um, that sort of thing. It was really an awakening for her to the these passionate people who believed in something bigger than themselves and believed that together they could make a change in the world um, for the better, so. Then we see her with her neighbor and um, played by the wonderful Kate Mara. And um, this is kind of back to her world and her life. And, um, you know, it's interesting, um, the character of Lana um, played by Kate Mara is, is one that, it, um, you know, with independent films, how budgetary concerns tend to dictate creative choices. And we actually, um, she actually had a much bigger role initially in, um, we wrote 28 drafts of this script. So I guess this is a good um, place to talk about the inception of this film. And, um, you know, interestingly, it actually started with um, Simon Curtis, who is, as you know, a British director. And um, he was really interested in a movie about the history of Planned Parenthood. So we worked with him. He came to us to write a film that he would direct. And in the excuse me, in the process of um, researching Planned Parenthood, which is extraordinary journey in itself, you know, in terms of the way the doctors had to disguise themselves when they went on planes or to get to their cars in parking lots. Um, but in the process, we found the story of the Jane Collective, um, which was something we had never heard of. And we didn't know anybody who had heard of them. So I went actually to my lifelong activist mother and said, and asked if she had heard of the Jane Collective in Chicago in the late sixties. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, one of the women in my writing group in Portland, Oregon um, was one of the original Janes. So that was Judith Arcana, who is also featured in the documentary, The Janes. And so I contacted Judith and she was so helpful and um, told us all these amazing stories about the Janes. She was actually um, pregnant um, at the time that they ended up um, performing abortions and she was one of the women who performed them and she was also one of the women who went to jail um right after giving birth so and um, that was her experience but the great thing was we got some really personal stories from her at a time when 
nobody had heard of the Janes and the Jane Collective. And our manager, our agent, Simon's manager and agent, everybody told us not to make this movie, not to write it, that it was too polarizing. And that was back in 2015 when we first started writing it. And who knew that, you know, in 2022, uh, Roe would be overturned and it would be more relevant, sadly, than ever. So um, here we are back with Joy and her husband, Will, and... Um, her neighbor, Lana. And this was a scene that, you know, just felt very much of the time to me because she's, Joy's pregnant and drinking, you know, gin and tonics or whatever she's drinking. And her neighbor is popping pills. And there really was a pill called housewife, um, a diagnosis called housewife syndrome. At, at the time. And so without really investigating what that pill was, Lana just takes it. And, you know, I think that for us, what was poignant was that she's not taking it for a condition other than feeling nothing. And I think that that says a lot about the predicament of mothers and housewives at that time who really didn't have a lot of choices in their life, not just about their bodies, but about their pursuit of happiness. So this is kind of a scene where Joy, you know, just casually drinks while pregnant, takes uh, a housewife syndrome pill and doesn't really think much about it. Um, you know, in, in some of the original uh, versions of this, Lana actually does become involved with the Jane Collective and only leaves when they start performing abortions um, themselves, which is really what becomes the conflict between Joy and her neighbor, best friend, Lana. And obviously this is a scene that's really a lot about um, the expectations of women at the time and the young girls who are sort of being groomed to be uh, housewives and mothers. And, you know, the conversation about blonde hair and how that's more attractive. Um, and the fact that getting your period was this this um, rite of passage, but also something that was embarrassing and not talked about. And um, that Charlotte definitely, who is a very independent uh, young lady, doesn't really want to share. And I remember 
I kind of base this a little bit on myself because my mom used to always leave that book, Our Bodies Ourselves, in like in my bedroom, in my, you know, every place that she thought I would sit and and hope that I would read it. And it just really creeped me out. Um, her, her mom's involvement in her private life as well as it not being something people really talked about. Um, and there we see Will for the first time, well, for the first time out of bed. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, they met in college and um, Joy was pursuing other things in college and um, obviously gave them up to become a housewife and mother as um, women obviously did in the 60s and 50s and 60s um, but she's really in this iteration a great editor she was in other iterations a great artist <laughs> um, but she's obviously smart and quick and and it's really here establishing that she wants more than what she has she wants a bigger life and that was you know when she saw the demonstration I think that was the first time it really peaked that um that emptiness inside her where she knows it's not enough and um doing the editing for her husband's briefs is a place she gets to feel useful and important in ways that are not just doing laundry and cooking dinner. But it's still invisible. It's invisible. Um, that she's an editor. If she was an her artist, desire. it would get no. It's invisible that the the editing work that she does on her husband's work is another mm. layer of invisibility. Whereas if she'd been an artist, as in earlier drafts, that gave her more agency somehow. So I like the fact that her work is invisible. She's editing her husband's work. Right. Exactly. There's That's no true. credit given. Mm-hmm. Um. It, yeah. She gets no credit for that, other than from him. And her cutting um, the carrots, we did have a number of scenes um, that were lost where she was carving a roast and she carved it with such precision and sort of confidence and, and that we got the sense that she was very good with her hands and very good with a knife and that she could have been a doctor. I'm a surgeon. And uh, and I think when um, we get to her condition, when she collapses here, it's, um, you know, it is based on um, another woman in the Jane Collective who did have 
cancer and could not get chemotherapy because she was pregnant. And in this case, it's a heart condition, um, which is also something that is medically, um, you know, accurate for the time that women had to make that choice. And except that women didn't have the choice, it was the husbands who made the choice. And that's what we see in all the upcoming scenes with her doctor and with the medical board that um, looks at her case and determines whether or not she has the choice to make a, um, to abort her baby or not. And, um, and I think, you know, they do make a point of saying how rare it is that they, um, that they make the determination that uh, it, it, that a woman has that, can have that choice. I think it happened once in 10 years. I think they say something like that. Um, and this scene is really um, to illustrate the fact that even with her own husband, she doesn't have agency, that he's the one saying, I don't know what to do as if it's his choice, you know, and um, as if it's a problem he has to solve and not something she can solve on her own. And fortunately, she does have the courage and wherewithal to be the problem solver herself. And um, we see that later when she makes the choice to seek <laughs> to seek reproductive uh, care. So you were saying that it's still his decision to make, essentially. But right. Yeah, on. and this upcoming scene is um, when they're meeting with the board, obviously, to try to plead their case for um, getting an exception and being allowed to have a to terminate her pregnancy. Hold on, and I'm sorry. I think we've got a we've got a we've got to pause again. I'm just gonna. Okay. Pick that up and play. Yeah. And, um, you know, in our research, this is really <clears throat> how it went down. Like, this is how women 
were treated. And in fact, I think it was hospital policy that the man had to be present before the doctor could give any results of any tests or any recommendations for treatment. Um, so if the husband was not there, the doctor did not, the doctor basically waited um, and did not give and disclose any information to the woman. And that was just, you know, basic hospital policy. And so here, you know, Joy is in a situation where she's surrounded by a room of men who are looking at her like a statistic and what her um, chances of survival are and uh, if they're good enough to not have to alter their policy. And um, obviously they decide that it's not uh, if there's any chance of her survival, that's good enough for them. Um, and here the doctor is giving her the option of basically saying she's suicidal. And, um, that was also the case back then that they had to prove that they were either, insane or suicidal or some other pathology in order to get the approval of the doctors. Um, and obviously in this case, you need it for two doctors and obviously only one was willing to give her um, that certification. And um, so she had to take it into her own hands and at that hospital, the, I think it was um, <clears throat> Cook County in Chicago, and they had an entire floor, an entire ward, um, sepsis ward for that was just filled with young women who had either tried to self-induce an abortion or had gone to back alley abortions or had, um, you know, been, had it botched in some other way, like trying to fall down the stairs, which is what Joy's contemplating now. And, um, <clears throat> and it was, I think, we had a scene where Joy really walks through, like she's not supposed to, but she sneaks into that sepsis ward and sees all those women. And that is pretty significant in terms of her consciousness changing and the realization that, okay, this is not just about me. This is about a law that prohibits women from having any agency over their own bodies and the results are devastating and tragic and so many women died and so many women without their knowledge had their reproductive organs removed so um in the process of uh of 
repairing the damage they had done to themselves or a back alley abortion had done to them. And um, during the research um, period, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, were you shocked? I mean, you say this quite matter of factly now because it, obviously you know it so well, but I mean, how did you feel as you were researching this stuff? And, and bearing in mind, it's only 50 years ago. I mean, it's shock. It was shocking, and I think like this is an example where she's going to the bank and trying to cash a check that is her husband's check, obviously that she's forged, and the panic that she's feeling about whether she's going to get caught or not. And that was one of the things that was shocking in the research is that I don't think women were allowed to have a credit card until 1974. So, you know, clearly she didn't have her own bank account and she didn't have her own source of income. So she was completely dependent on her husband. And obviously in this case, she couldn't tell him why she needed the money. So she had to forge his signature. And I, I just think, you know, the sepsis wards that were filled with young women who were dying and um, the doctors who would not give out any results of tests or advice unless the husband was in the room, all of that was truly shocking when we, um, yeah, when we were doing the research. It was really pretty painful to realize. And and just the fact that like here where she's going to this, you know, neighborhood she's never been in to a doctor that clearly is not in a uh, medical facility of any kind. And, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, that's not something men ever had to do. And um, so, you know, here she still obviously uh, doesn't know what to expect. And It's another realization because this was the option. This was the alternative. Um, you know, besides self-inducing an abortion was just going into a really alienating, strange, cold, dark environment where you were not treated with any humanity. You were just basically a cash customer and um so she flees the first time and obviously that's when she discovers the jane collective um on a billboard, I mean, on a um, 
posted on a on um what was it just like a poll or something and um but that's the way the jane collective got the word out i mean they posted stuff they plastered just like brick walls and um bathrooms women's bathrooms and you know uh it it is I think people would think like, well, that's surprising that they didn't get caught given that they had their phone number everywhere. But obviously tracking people's, you know, location from phones back in those days was not as easy. Um, but also they had a lot of people who were willing to look the other way. The police department in Chicago at the time and um, <clears throat> there were priests that were referring their Catholic priests who are actually referring um, some of their congregation to uh, to the Jane Collective at the time and who believed in what they were doing. But here, as we say, oh, I guess it's posted on the mailbox. Um, so that was that's a very real way that women found out about the Janes. And you know, and it's pretty surprising also the male attitude here seemed to be from our conversations with Judith and um what we had read about pretty pretty universal in that, you know, Will is an attorney, he's not going to um, break any rules or laws. And he just sort of accepts that, well, you know, the let's just pray for the best and hope the odds are, you know, with us when she has this baby because we have no alternative. And he, you know, so it's very interesting to me that that he doesn't think out of the box, but that seemed to be the case then. They, it was just like, well, it's in the hands of God, um, whether she lives or not. And, um, So when she finds the Janes, um, you, you know, from my conversations also with Judith, it's like the most important thing, um, you know, the Jane Collective started out as obviously as a referral organization and it came out of the women's rights movement at the time. And, um, you know, but it was really about trying to counteract the paradigm that they were in where men who didn't understand what it felt like to have an abortion, what it felt like physically, mentally, psychically, you know, spiritually, any of it were the ones that were in charge. And so there was not the kind of comfort or humanity 
that was really required for a woman not to have a devastating experience. And so many of the experiences of so many women, even the ones that, you know, came out of it physically fine, were emotionally and mentally traumatized because of the way they were treated as just a number really. And um, so that was, I think, one of the biggest things the Janes cared about in the beginning was just a whole different experience where they would hold the woman's hand, they would guide her, they would talk to her, they would counsel. There was a required, I think, one or two counseling sessions before they would even refer you in the beginning because they wanted you to not be pressured one way or the other. There was no judgment, there was no pressure, um, there was only comfort and trying to give you as a woman agency to make your own choice about your own reproductive rights. And um, And and they operated that way, you know, for a while before it became untenable for so many women to come up with the money um, to pay the, the decent doctors that they found. You know, they could maybe afford the back alley doctors, but the Jane Collective had worked with a number of, before um, before Dean, they had had other reputable doctors. And, um, but because the whole abortion uh, industry, let's say, was really run by the mafia, in Chicago in the late 60s. And these doctors were charging exorbitant fees because they were also paying off the mob and um, and they were greedy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when they, they sort of by necessity had to find a way to provide services for more women than they could, even with the one or two doctors that they had had. And, um, and that's when they decided to take it into their own hands, which is the contribution Joy makes to this group was, um, you know, maybe because she came from more privilege or maybe because she had an attorney husband, um, but also because she just had a desire to make a difference in the world um, that her mind allowed her to come to that um, pretty revolutionary idea of 
doing it themselves. And, um, you know, whereas women who have been in the movement, the, the feminist movement, um, the women's liberation movement for years knew what the risks were. Whereas Joy came in as an innocent, not knowing what the risks were. And so maybe that allowed her mind to go places that the others wouldn't dare go like um, Virginia, Sigourney Weaver's character. And, um, and I think that was the choice we made. You know, that's why I think uh, the Janes is a great complimentary documentary to watch along with this because, um, you know, obviously it's historically completely accurate. Whereas in this version, we really wanted the lead character to be accessible to everybody. Um, so not someone who had been in the movement for their whole life or, you know, their whole adult life. Um, but somebody who was entering into it as we are and who doesn't really understand all the risks of being an activist and um, but has the curiosity, has the passion, has the desire um, to change her own life and in so doing, hopefully, change the lives of others. And for those who don't know, is Joy a composite or is she, what was she a part of the movement for real? No, she's a composite of a number of characters, including Judith, <laughs> um, who, like I said, was pregnant when she was performing abortions and going to jail. I think, um, you know, the writing process was really interesting because in the beginning, like I mentioned, you know, we were told not to write this by everybody. And, um, because it was more polarizing at the time. And um, there was this, you know, you know, it's interesting. I actually asked my own gynecologist if she had ever performed abortions. And she literally looked around the room, even though there was no one else in there, and really quietly said that she had. So even today for a mainstream doctor there's a stigma to having performed abortions which i found really interesting and so in this writing process you know it sort of evolved from that place of being sort of in the closet and unspoken to becoming um, a more open narrative um in the sense like here when she's getting her own abortion you know it's very detailed it's very uh visible um in the early iterations of the script we had to take out all the procedures we had a number of them 
and we were guided to take them all out because of you know it not being accessible to enough people had we left them in and then you know it kind of went full circle and when the consciousness of changed and people started having the conversation about Roe and the overturning of Roe and you know which was all becoming a big possibility um the script evolved into bringing back the procedures and um, I'm really glad it did um That's fascinating because I didn't know what the period of gestation was, no pun intended, of the of the script. Yeah. Because you mentioned that you had started writing it around 2015, and I think it ended up in the blacklist, um, on the blacklist in 2017. Uh, the blacklist, mm -hmm. which is the kind of the 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 sort of highest um, uh, calculus of unproduced scripts, like the hottest unproduced scripts in town for people who don't know. Um, and I wasn't sure how deep into the production you actually were when when this kind of when word of of Roe v Wade being under threat came about so it sounds like it was that you were actually in the in the trenches at the time yeah things yeah. evolving based on you know what was happening so which is yeah it got horrifying, of course. yeah right after the completed production on this and um you know but I think what was interesting also in researching this movie was the realization that you know even though we had Roe in place in a place that we thought was settled law in something like 90% of the counties in America, there was no access to clinics that provided abortions. Um, so it was kind of one of those things where you realize, well, Rose passed, it's codified, it's legal, um, but the only people who really had access to it to who benefited from it were people who could afford still to get abortions or who lived in New York or LA or Chicago or you know the big city but in the rural areas of the United States and in the smaller towns and you know, large parts of Texas and Arkansas and, you know, Nebraska, all these places, there was no access anyway. There were no clinics. So in some ways, we kind of felt that this was, that the overturning of Roe was coming. And that was kind of the feeling that we had towards the end of writing this. And I think it's the feeling that, that the actual Janes had was that, you know, it was almost as if their row hadn't been passed in such a large part of the country that um, 
that we almost needed something to shake us up and make us recognize that, wait a minute, so many women don't have access. Um, and, you know, strangely, I think the overturning of Roe is having in some ways a positive effect in that it has brought the conversation to the forefront and it is forcing the con it, it's forcing the hand of you know states to codify uh abortion rights reproductive rights in a way that they hadn't done before and maybe you know maybe that will lead to more clinics in areas that where they didn't exist because it's now been um, acknowledged and as a huge problem, um, which is not to say anyone wanted Roe to be overturned, um, but the conversation needed to be had. I mean, I think it had gone quiet after, you know, it was an election promise of Barack Obama in 2008. He promised to codify Roe versus Wade. And then within the first hundred days of his um, inauguration, he went on record saying that it was no longer a priority. I don't know if you remember that, but it was. And then, and then it sort of went very quiet for, for a lot of years. Yeah. But it has certainly brought it back into the conversation, certainly had an effect on the midterm. So it's still a kind of a live wire, isn't it? As you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think people became complacent and um, sort of thought of it as like, well, oh, of course, you know, we have this right. It's never going away. And um, and that was never the truth. So. I'm glad that that the conversation is being had and, and I'm glad that the um you know the documentary came out at the same time and um and you know obviously when Call Jane premiered at Sundance there were a number of movies that dealt with the subject matter and of abortion um which was very timely for all I mean you know, and obviously very unplanned since we started writing this in 2015. But it was a choice, you know, I mean, ultimately, I guess, as I said, the reason I am glad that the documentary came out is because it does portray um, the history accurately. I think um, the choice that we ultimately made was to try to make this more accessible, you know, like, you know, having someone like Elizabeth Banks, who has a very large fan base um, in many, you know, more broadly viewed um, genres of film. And... Um, that she could bring in an audience who maybe would not normally go see a movie about abortion. And, um, and the hope was to make her character more accessible because in the end, obviously, 
she chooses uh, motherhood. And, um, you know, and that's hard because we don't want it to feel like, okay, you can either be a mother or you can be an activist. You, you know, because Virginia is an activist and not a mother and Joy is a mother and not an activist at first. And then she becomes an activist and um, it becomes very challenging for her, you know, in terms of uh, her obligations to her family and her the needs of her family and her desire to be with them and to spend time with her daughter and uh, her husband. And so, you know, I think she does face that challenge that so many women face and can relate to in terms of how to do both. Um, but we definitely, you know, in the end, when she makes the commitment to teach all Janes who want to learn how to perform abortions themselves, um, she, she makes that decision to not leave abruptly the way she had, but to come back and give them everything they needed to carry on without her while she worked behind the scenes, you know, whether it was fundraising through her husband's wealthy colleagues or um, other ways of garnering um, support for the Jane collection collective uh but in truth you know my preference would have been that <laughs> that she stayed and that because you know her evolution was to become something uh that was bigger than the life she had had that was more expansive that touched more people that was more satisfying personally and um and that challenged her intellect that challenged her courage that challenged her in so many ways which which i think did happen but um but in the end i think it was the more accessible choice to have her decide to de that she had devoted the time she had devoted to the Janes and now it was time to devote some, uh, her time left while her daughter's still living at home to being um, a mother and to and being a housewife um so that was that was a choice <laughs> It must have been fun to write the Virginia character after spending so much time with Joy, who maybe isn't a lightweight housewife who makes mediocre snickerdoodles and, and has four o'clock martinis, but she's kind of nailed her a little bit there. But then Virginia comes in as this kind of, I don't know, like a Kathy Bates type character who just kind of takes ownership of everything. And the movie sort of changes gear, doesn't it? She must have been a lot of fun to write. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. Um... And um, and it's it. I really like the character of Virginia because 
Um, she reminds me of my mom. She is a lifelong activist. She has been through um, movements, whether they're anti-war movements or anti, you know, nuclear movements or whatever the movements were of the time. So she had experienced what it's like to to be in a political movement run by men. And um, in her experience, there was a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, arguing and a lot of not getting anything done. Whereas in this organization led by her and formed by women, they were not about sitting around and you know chit-chatting like when they sat around they were going through the cards they were determining how to provide as many safe abortions to as many people as they could but they didn't spend a lot of time just sitting around having meetings they were they had so many women to service that that was just not even an option and, um, you know, I personally, I, um, my own background is I grew up in a political collective in Venice Beach um, at a time when uh, my mom was, uh, my parents sort of went in different directions, my mom becoming more of a political activist, my dad being a professor at UCLA and more into academia and and so my mom um ended up inviting all her students from um this kind of anti-war class she was teaching at UCLA and um they all moved in so I grew up in this political collective in Venice and my entire childhood was just watching them have meetings. It was just meetings after meetings after meetings. So I really related to the character of Virginia having experienced what it was like to, to do politics when men are in charge. Um, and the kind of egos that... Not to say there weren't some egos, I'm sure, in the Jane Collective, um, but they managed to get a lot more done. And I think, you know, um, I think some people have commented on um, the woman, uh, the young woman that Joy took to her first abortion and um, who turns out to be the same woman who is her last abortion. And, um, and she takes it all very um, frivolously. And, um, you know, obviously that was really just to make a point that the Jane Collective was not about judging why women 
were pregnant, why they didn't want to be pregnant, or if they changed their mind and did want to be pregnant, that, that there was no judgment, that it was about providing healthcare and emotional support. And, um, you know, so that is why that character comes into play in the beginning and in the end. And, but in this anatomy course that Joy is giving herself with her, you know, pocket makeup mirror, um, I think that we did like, that was an interesting part of the research too, because there were just not books accessible at the libraries that really talked about the female anatomy and um, the procedures like abortions. That was just not accessible at the time. Um, so, you know, I think for these women, there was some shame to uh, knowing your body, which is very, you know, contrary to what's beneficial to them. I don't know how much of that was on the page, but the the scene just just went by where um, uh, Joy is sneaking a look at the drawing that Virginia is doing and then sort of nodding like, oh, yeah, that's what it looks like. You know, as, but it's very yeah. clear from the way that Elizabeth yeah. plays it that um, that she didn't have a clue what any of that any of those things were either her body's a mystery to her as well and then of course you go to the examination scene so yeah yeah and there was a stigma to learning about your body you know it was definitely not it you you were on a need to know basis like you know <laughs> you just really were not um encouraged to investigate that uh the vagina monologues were still a few years away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it also was a way that men could maintain control and agency over women's bodies is that they were the only ones who knew how they worked. The women didn't. You know, in one iteration of our script, um, it was actually Lana's daughter, Erin, who got pregnant. And that's what forced her to confront, you know, what it meant for a young woman to be put in a position that could change, affect, ruin their lives. And- um, Did you feel that was just a little that, too, too neat? That, that it yeah, it was a little too on the nose, yeah. A little too written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So, were there other choices that were that were made once Philip Phyllis came on board, the director, that uh, where, where you talked about different points of view and things? I mean, that's obviously an inevitable part of the process. But does anything jump out at you when I when I mention that? Well, you know what's interesting is in this um, development process. Um, we wrote 28 drafts of this script um, over five years with four different directors. So 
you know, Simon Curtis was our first director and he ended up leaving to do um, a movie that I always forget the name of, but it's like The Art of Racing in the Rain, I think it was called. That is it, yep. And for Fox. And um, then uh, we had Sean Henner, who, you know, I think brought a lot of warmth to the script. Like um, she brought the spaghetti dinners to it. And, um, you know, so I think it's interesting because each director had a different sort of, you know, um, sensibility that they brought. So with, it's interesting, with Simon, he really wanted it to have more of a 50s feeling. Um, and mm, more of a quiet kind of emotionality whereas um you know Sean brought that the warmth of wanting it to be more of a the way women are when they're together you know where their food is involved and um you know more warmth and comfort and joy and all of that. And um, then we had another director, Stephanie Green, come on. And we started going through all the characters with her and sort of really defining each of them um, in a more layered and in-depth way. And then um, she had, uh, she left because she got pregnant. <laughs> and um, then uh, Phyllis came on and uh, then COVID hit. So we actually had less contact with Phyllis than we did with the other directors. Uh, and we were supposed to go into production a year earlier, but because of COVID it got delayed and um, you know, so we only had a, a couple conversations with her before they finally went into production after it was really at the times when when people had just started getting vaccinated um and so they could finally go into production which was great but i mean what a time magnet you know that with um between elizabeth and sigourney and and uh Kate Mara, won me, you know, all of these people. But Phyllis was kind of a, feels like a bit of a giant to attach after Carol, you know. And then things yeah. pretty fast when those pieces were all in place, by the sounds of it, pandemic notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, we are initially, um, we actually had Elizabeth Moss and Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon was playing Virginia. And um, Elizabeth Moss was playing Joy. And um, but because of COVID and because of honestly just how challenging it is to make an independent film, you know, the time just kept stretching and then people's schedules changed and, you know, uh, priorities shift. And and so we yeah, we went through 
multiple iterations of the cast as well as directors because of that um, delay. And then I, yeah, I think what Phyllis really brought is like this very interesting sort of visual moodiness. Like, I think that the look of it feels very real to the time. And I know she shot on film rather than digitally. And um, uh, she really brought an artistry, I think, to the look of it I mean, as I well as that that decision beyond the costumes and the cars and all of the things you know the 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 the, the bric-a-brac around the set that makes you that's a constant reminder that you're watching a, a film from that period it's something more ambient that it's shot on film and it has the texture of a film that was made at that time. There's just something glorious about that. Very, very mm -hmm. subtle, but it makes mm -hmm. it really makes a difference. Yeah. And Sigourney is just, I love her in this scene where she's like, you know, so seductive in getting what she wants. And like, she's putting on this whole, performance where they're playing this strip uh poker or whatever it is that um that they're playing and um and it's all really for the cause like everything she does is in pursuit and benefit of the the cause and um but she's so, I think she's so seductive and convincing in her pursuit of what she wants. And he's such a doofus. I mean, bless him for, for wearing that hair. I think um, Chris Messina got the better deal as far as hair goes, but he's got the book. Corey Michael Smith here as, as Dr. Dean has got the, the, the perfect mop top. <laughs> so I love his performance. I think oh, he's great. Too. He's, he's complicated. Great. And the fact that he wasn't really a doctor in real life, you know, that Mike, the the actual doctor, was not a doctor. Um oh and and the fact that they're playing truth or dare, I think is really poignant since the truth is that he's not what he pretends to be. The way that she kind of bamboozles him in this scene, I just, I wanted to applaud. It was so great. I should have seen it coming, you know, that she was, he wasn't going to like get one over on her, you know. Yeah. But she was still going to get what she wants out of him. I mean, just immaculate. These are, yeah. these are the kinds of scenes that producers often want to take out because they're not sort of intrinsic to, you know, that it's not that it's not yeah. plot forward because of course it's doing that as well, but it just feels like this movie allows 
you to kind of take your time and just enjoy a hang with these characters. And you're not even aware that the plot is moving forward, even though it is, because obviously this is part of the, the deal that's going to create the new environment, you know. And it's amazing how much exposition has come out, actually, that you don't realise was exposition. You've talked about the mob. You've talked about, you know, a black activist. You talked about marching on Selma. It's like loads of stuff is in there. It's all mixed up in there, but you're not aware. Mm -hmm. You're not at school. You know, it doesn't feel like homework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, um, obviously the Jane Collective was comprised of mostly white women. So I think that um, it's, it's pretty accurate. You know, it would have been great if it had been a more diverse cast, but um, it was really accurate for the times and for that organization. But, you know, it's like today, if there's going to be a restriction, of course, it's always going to impact people of color more. It's always going to impact people at lower economic um, stations more. And um, that's just how our society works you know especially when you don't have uh when health care is is a privilege still in the united states mm -hmm. you know and there were a lot of um mafia doctors at the time and i think that's originally how mike learned to perform um in in real life uh abortions um, and I don't know if those mafia doctors were actual doctors or not. Oh my God. But I think with abortion, what was also fascinating is like, it really is, you know, I think that the male doctors want you to feel like it's such a complicated feat when in fact it's actually a very simple procedure um and the fact that they sort of make it feel so mysterious when it's very straightforward um and which is why they could learn how to do it so well. I mean, somebody who had no medical training could learn how to do it so well, like Mike or in, in this case, Dean or Joy. I love this scene where he's like, you know, you could have been a nurse. Like his mentality is no different than <laughs> any other man, even though he works with women like Virginia, who are clearly stronger than he is, his 
assumptions are of the times. I love that she steals this book. <laughs> and you mentioned this was Judith's uh, trajectory as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she does get to kind of be an artist as well. Mm -hmm. She's a pretend artist. <laughs> yeah. She goes to pretend art classes. <laughs> so, but like this is a good example of people they had um, who looked the other way, like the um, the pharmacy. Uh, Oh, not this. This isn't, sorry, you, you can delete that. Um, when they are actually collecting all the supplies from the pharmacies, there were people on the inside of pretty much every leg of the organization that um, provided services and looked the other way. And also we weren't able to do this. It, it was in the scripts, but... Um, you know, the Jane Collective originally uh, had all these kind of friends of the Janes is what they call them. And they would leave their apartments first thing in the morning. The Janes would like come in, they would, you know, transform the apartment into something that um, was comfortable and medically safe and, um, and performed the abortions there all day. And then the people would come back at night and then they would the next day go to somebody else's apartment, some other friend of the Janes. And that's how they kept, you know, eluding whatever police were not looking the other way um, and who were trying to find them. And I, I don't think anyone was really trying to find them, but, but, there were people who reported them um, who knew people who were getting abortions and were not happy about it um, and other uh, lay people like that who reported sightings of the Janes, but they kept it moving. Like they were moving from apartment to apartment to apartment and we couldn't get all that in obviously because that would be a lot of locations. Wow, that's a good that's a good detail. And do you think, I mean, among the authorities, was it was there a kind of don't ask, don't tell attitude where you said you mentioned before that the police weren't terribly interested in prosecuting these kinds of things that, you know. Yeah, according to Judith, there were a number of um police in the Chicago area who use their service 
and who referred them to their friends. And um, so it was very much um, not just looking the other way, but actually uh, using the service themselves. But then when I think that the reports started to come in from, you know, disgruntled husbands or, you know, sister-in-laws or whatever it was, that's when they had to do some investigating. But I don't think they would have on their own. And that's why they ended up, you know, seven of them going to jail. Mm -hmm. Are you the kind of writer that puts music choices in the script to give a sense of period and, and then, you know, uh, you have to like make do with, I mean, there's some great music in the film, but uh, you have to make do with choices that you can get, you know, for the budget. Right, right. And you leave that especially, to the, yeah. the post-production. Yeah, no, I don't, but I thought that, um, Phyllis made some really interesting toy music choices. I think there are the sort of go-to late 60s songs, you know, like from the Big Chill and movies like that, that, you know, she didn't use, which I thought was very impressive that she found some very unique um, songs of the time. And also, you know, the music can tell a, tell a story as well, because the fact that she's listening to Velvet Underground at the beginning is not, she's not watching a Doris Day movie on a, you know, on a, on a black and white TV set in the kitchen. You know, it's like, it's something that's a little bit, already she's kind of pushing the envelope of what you'd expect from a suburban housewife, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, one thing that really just interests me in general as a writer is, um, or as a human <laughs> is what it what actually it takes to activate somebody to go down the path that they were meant to go down you know like what in in this case it literally took life or death for joy but um you know metaphorically it's almost life and death I think for a lot of people um, where you're awakened to a um, something that's been stirring within you for such a long time and, and you've resisted. Uh, I remember actually years ago in college, I was in this, um, course called birth of a poet with william i think william everson i think that was the poet's name and um, and or evers anyway and he would talk he talked about how um we all have this calling and we will spend most of our lives resisting it and it will be um and every time we resist it we will sort of hit a wall that will bounce off of and then we will try to pursue something else and that ultimately until we pursue that calling 
we will be uh, unsettled in our lives, unsatisfied. And, uh, and I, I think that, you know, that I find interesting just about joy because she was meant, you know, there was something so much bigger um, waiting to come out of her and it, it, it took life and death for her, but I like the idea of questioning what it takes for you, you know, what it takes for everyone watching this film to activate that part of themselves that's been dormant, that's been languishing for so long and and be who they are and speak their truth and um, live out loud and all that. It's funny to use the word activate, isn't it? Because what she gets into is activism. It's all active. It's 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 doing things, not sitting on the porch sipping G and T mm -hmm. four o'clock. You know, it's mm -hmm. sort of she doesn't know that she's moving towards her destiny. You know that it's just she's just putting one foot in front of the other right now and then making the logical steps. But what a huge transformation she's already undergone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what's put on women when they make choices is a lot of um, judgment, you know, and I think, for example, to make the choice to choose your own life over your child's life, you know, because theoretically, the child could have lived even if she died. Uh but I think that there was a judgment that she would choose living or the fact that there was so much more she still wanted to do in life that she would choose that over um, the child's life is, you know, pretty typical of how men, because women were just vessels for children and for homemaking and for meals and um, that it was selfish of them to want their own life and their own, you know, to pursue their own wonder and curiosity and all of that. And here's all these women in the Jane Collective that are doing that, um, which is great. But even the decision to make it a life or death decision, I mean, the, the decision in the writing to make it a life or death decision for joy uh, is something, um, you know, if it had been a decision that she made that she didn't want another child because her, because Charlotte was already, you know, nearly grown, mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been acceptable, would it, in a sort of a Hollywood no. film? That would have been so selfish. Yeah. I mean, that would have been the judgment. Exactly. Which shows how far you can push the envelope in a way before judgment begins from the audience even. Yeah. And I think also the judgment of the, the first woman that Joy picks up that we had discussed before of enjoying sex like she just liked 
to have sex with her boss. And there's something also very um, seemingly selfish about that. Like that a woman is doing something for her own pleasure was so, you know, unacceptable at the time. And especially if it had consequences like getting pregnant and, you know, I mean, I think we can hypothesize that the man, her boss also had pleasure in, but he had no repercussions other than giving her some money. And she kind of saw it as an occupational hazard a bit as well, doesn't she? She treats it quite matter of factly. Yeah, yeah, it's true. She does. Um, I guess the medical stuff you take in stride because you've got some background um, with the medical profession as far as the, the resident goes, right? Yeah, I mean, the, my co-writer on this um Roshan Sethi, he's a doctor and, um, you know, he had done a rotation at a um, women's clinic. So a lot of the medical came from him. Yeah, I think that because they've just been having all the discussions about like who is deserving of an abortion, I think, you know, when they only have a certain number of uh, free abortions they can afford to provide. And then to see her, it might've been a little jarring, but it's because she's one of the only women, I mean, she's one of the ones who can pay because she has her boss paying for her abortion and so I think it it you know it was important to bring her back because then we got to see the full cycle of joy going from being so judgmental to being compassionate <laughs> <laughs> that's her again I like the detail of these little uh, posters as well. The you know the the art direction so beautifully. The the de the details that you notice in the background on. Yeah, no, I love that too. And I think that you know here where she's performing that abortion on her, I think you know clearly you saw when she first saw who it was, and it was like oh, you again. You know it tested her old mentality. And um, and she had to sort of suppress that old joy who was judgmental for the new joy who is, you know, understanding and accepting and compassionate and um, and I think it's because of the experience she went through herself, being a woman also of privilege that um, she was able to find that compassion. And as Virginia says, you know, we don't make judgments, you know, we, we help women 
because otherwise you if you got into the backstory but i know you didn't you, you did mention the fact that they had a couple of sort of counseling sessions it wasn't just like a conveyor belt kind of thing you know uh, whoever comes to the door yeah yeah no they did and 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 there were some women who really weren't ready to have an abortion and they really gave them the space to make that decision um as opposed to the pro-life organizations that um, don't advocate uh, choice for in their counseling sessions. I assume most people listening to this podcast are writers themselves, so I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But one thing I really wasn't prepared for was how little agency and control writers have in the feature film space or the way we're sidelined by the festivals in the press. The festivals, of course, cater to auteurs, which is great, except when the director isn't also the writer and they seem to just proceed as if she or he is or they just pretend like there is no writer. It just wrote itself, I guess. Um, and I assume it's a throwback to the old days when studios had directors under contract and writers were simply guns for hire to deliver the director's vision. But we're somehow still operating in that old system, even though writers, especially writers of independent films, are usually the ones who conceive of and execute their own original ideas. And I was recently listening to this podcast with the great British screenwriter, William Nicholson, and he was talking about his own battles with this ingrained disparity and how he's had to come to terms with it over the years, despite it being an archaic and unfair system. And I think one of the unfortunate outcomes is that many talented feature writers are turning to TV where they are given agency, control, and a voice at the table. So my hope is that as the line between TV and film grows thinner and thinner, so will the disparity between writers and directors. But in the meantime, I think all of us as writers need to stand up for our rights as much as possible. Charlotte is one of those characters who doesn't really get to say what she's thinking out loud, but I think Grace Edwards portrays her inner life very well. You know, you can see that she's kind of wrestling with stuff inside, even though she's not necessarily speaking her mind. And it's, a, I think it's a lot for, you know, a 15 year old, 16 year old to, go through to see, you know, it's like you have this certain idea of what a mother is and what a housewife is. And, you know, for Charlotte, I think that it's having to stretch her own understanding of what those models are because she was trying to become that model of who she thought her mother was. And then it turns out her mother isn't who she thought she was. And now does she have to, uh, you know, change her idea of who she, she wants to become? And I think uh, 
I think it's a lot to take in for someone her age. Yeah, I think you get a sense of that early on when, you know, the the sort of the period conversation happens that she doesn't feel like ready to face that reality. And then obviously she feels like quite coddled by that, the existence that she has. And to have that suddenly, to suddenly discover the subterfuge, it's almost like it would be better if she discovered that her mother was having an affair or something. <laughs> right. I think she yeah. actually says that. I wish you were having an affair. Right. Because right. she would be able to fit that into her, you know. Yeah. It's more banal and universe. And yeah. You know, cliche. It's still a tear in the fabric of your teenage reality, obviously, you know, but one that's a little more relatable and that you can at least, you know, confide in your best friend about but this is a whole other level mm -hmm. and we talk about like the home ec courses and the kind of grooming that is going on for young women um and that they aren't really being given the education that gives them the options to make choices later. They're being sort of encouraged to take more courses like home economics and uh, nurturing skills. Oh, yeah. And here's the pharmacy scene where you see that they have people who are looking the other way, sometimes because they believe in the cause and sometimes like in this case for the money or maybe both. I love this guy. He's such a good actor. He's he's kind of like the male Virginia in the sense like he knows how to intimidate in very few words. <laughs> did the authorities appear earlier in other drafts of the script? I, I, I did wonder. Yes. Yes, we did have them appearing earlier. We, we actually had one draft um where there was a, a because they were in um you know they have the the front and then they have the um, place where they actually perform the abortions and um they the cops were literally chasing them like there was a big car chase chasing them from one place to the next and um you know they were having to ditch them and warn each other and it was a whole big thing that we ended up losing um because i 
I think in, in truth, you know, it's probably more accurate the way it is because the cops were aware, but looked the other way. And, and when the arrest happened, it was really just, um, they just convened on the, the place, the front and the place. Mm -hmm. That one time and arrested everybody. Yeah, I can see that there that there could you know potentially be a version where there's like a a dogged cop who's determined to track down the you know to to expose what's going on because maybe of some personal connection that he had or whatever. But you know that would just feel like it would sort of tip it into you know pushing it into like thriller or even you know melodrama a little bit. You don't need mm -hmm. any of that. It's just nice to stay with the women and and. Yeah, the car chases, I guess, became a little too much. Yeah. Um, but I think this is, to, to me, this scene is really much more about Will discovering that his wife is not who he thought she was. And um, that he really, like, even when he's saying, I assure you, she would never involve herself in something like this. I think he knows at this point that that's what she's been doing instead of art class. And, um, you know, he's having to sort of shake up his, his framework of beliefs a bit, realizing like, oh, you know, I've been living and married to this woman who I didn't know was capable of this. And, uh, I think that's a big part of this scene. Ah, oh, that's interesting because I, I I'd forgotten that 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 was part of it. I thought that it was a uh, oh, you don't understand, detective. This is all a big misunderstanding. You know, I thought that was kind of he was genuinely thinking that. You know, because yeah, no, I think he's figured it out. Um, before this. But obviously this confirms it for him. Jones. But there was a lot of art classes and very little art, let's just say, to <laughs> show for it. Yeah. And I think that's really true to what we've been talking about, where the cop comes and he intimidates, but ultimately it's a self-serving uh, proposition. You know, he has someone in need of a pregnant of a of an abortion. Dare I say that it, it it's partly the fact that will is not that interested in her art class if if we're all honest yeah that's, that's true probably too. the reason why the subterfuge worked so well because he's like oh that's nice dear you've got you know yeah. you've got something to keep you busy in the evenings when i'm uh, you know having drinks with the clients or whatever yeah if he showed just a little more interest you know none of none of this could have happened yeah, that's really true. I think in an early iteration, she was 
uh, an Avon salesperson. That was her, uh, that was her excuse. Oh, and, that's good. Um, yeah. Instead of art class. Yeah. And, that, that's uh, got a good period specificity about it as well. It feels like something that was very much on the rise in that era, not Tupperware because that's too, you know, that's that that's a bit too silly. But but Avon, yeah, that feels perfect. Yeah, she was. But then it was like, well, wait, where's all her money <laughs> that she would have made from selling these products in this pyramid scheme? Um so I think that was one of the reasons it was changed. Yeah, now his world is kind of upended and mm -hmm. kind of crashing down his little yeah. you know, framework has all changed as well. And and, you know, and it's also Charlotte who really wanted the independence. She didn't want her mother, you know, getting involved with her getting her period or, you know, her relationships with her friends. She didn't want her sort of um, interrupting her life, you know, her home at classes she sort of had to defend that them and yet her outburst is really you're not there for me you don't see me so it was like she's complicated too because she wants to appear like she doesn't need her mom but she does It's complicated to navigate, isn't it, in the in the writing of of this, where you you see that she can't just have this other life as well. That there there are sacrifices that has to be made. She has to, you know, sneak around. She has to lie to her husband. She has to take time away from her child to do this stuff. You know, it's always about that. You know, what are you allowed to do and still be the 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 homemaker that you're supposed to be in this time and in this place. Yeah. Joy is always having to navigate those those two things as well. But I guess that's more subtle because that's not necessarily part of the story, but it's certainly part of her existence. How much time is she allowed to carve out for herself and for her activism, you know, and for what she's doing? Yeah. And I think, I think like we were talking about before, I, we want to believe that you can do both and sometimes you can and sometimes you can't there were other iterations of this um where she actually does experience the consequences of her choices in that <clears throat> in that will leaves her and she ended up getting an apartment and live being on her own and Charlotte didn't really like the apartment and she liked her house. And so she wanted to be there with Will and her dad. And, you know, it was kind of like, if I have to choose, I'm going to choose dad. And um, that was a little bit from my own experience growing up with an activist mom. And 
you know, my father had a much safer, comfortable lifestyle because, you know, growing up the child of an activist, you never know uh, what you're going to find. When you wake up in the morning, there's probably like some people from the demonstration the day before sleeping on the floor or on the beanbag pillows or, you know, there's always like 20 people at dinner. You never <laughs> get to, to like to choose um, what, I mean, you always have to share, I guess that's the question, which is not always easy for kids. You know, you have to share your mother, you have to share your food, you have to share, you know, your space. And um, I think that that's what it is for Charlotte. And so in that iteration, you know, there was a consequence that Joy had to um, live with for the choice that she made because she didn't have a husband who necessarily um, was sympathetic to her cause. I, th I think that we ultimately found the right balance, you know, where her husband is not sympathetic, but when she makes the agreement with the Janes in the end that she will teach them how to do the abortions, she, you know, comes with her pumpkin in hand, um, that, that is a compromise he can live with and um, that she's going to ultimately come back and be a mom and be his wife. And, um, and that's the agreement they made. And so that's how she lived with it. But like I said, you know, there were certainly versions where the consequences were much greater like this scene is a great example where she's talking to lana about their political affiliations and uh you know lana voted for nixon or uh that's what her husband her deceased husband would have wanted and what he did and so that's what she did and joy is secretly a democrat and, and I think that <clears throat> says a lot about like when she pursues her own identity, <clears throat> she has to keep it hidden. It's the, the love that, that, that dare not speak its name <laughs> in suburban <laughs> Chicago, whatever. Yeah. That's that's quite a nice moment a moment when it's like she said, you know, boy, you know I'm black or, or something. You know, yeah. Lana's kind of taken aback that she's a Democrat. That's that's great. Yeah. And that Joy even has the wherewithal in that kind of environment to be a Democrat. And you know, it it sounded like from that scene she didn't make it to the polls but you know the fact that ballots are secret i think is a really good metaphor like you can secretly be a democrat and cast your vote without anybody knowing because you're in you know your own private booth without your husband mm -hmm.
And I think this is a good scene because it really um, shows Charlotte seeing what her mother's giving up, you know, what she's giving up for her family, for her and how much it means to her mom to be able to use the skills she has to help others. Not just her family and not just her daughter. But to, to have a bigger, you know, world Charlotte's probably at the very worst age for for wanting to kind of share yeah, or, or have anything changed because <laughs> yeah. so much is changing within herself. You know, she probably <laughs> needs that stability. And then, you know, now she gets to experience the her mother's sort of selflessness and have to be and, and be okay with it because it's because she's doing the right thing and because she knows that ultimately being selfish about keeping her mum all to herself is wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah my own mother um in her political activism ended up going to jail when i was seven wow. um for an extended period of time and so many people were so judgmental of her and felt that she was selfish for doing that because all she needed to do was testify, um, you know, but the questions were about like list every meeting you've ever been to, who was present, what was discussed. You know, it was questions about people like Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden and all the people that used to hang out at our house and come to political meetings. And, um, and you know, I people are always trying to convince me that um, that I'm resentful of her making the choices she made. And the truth is, you know, I think that if a, if a mother can't express they came into this world to be and to do, they're not going to be a good mother anyway. <laughs> so you're better off letting them and supporting them in their own passions so that they can support you. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I've always felt about it. And I think that's the conclusion Charlotte comes to. But I suppose because it's uh, rather than being raised in the, in the environment where that's always you know that been a part of her life as you said you were for charlotte mm -hmm. obviously it's a it's a shock yes for her to suddenly become aware that now this is you know her mother's other life kind of thing so perhaps if she'd come up through that pro that process it would be it would be easier to accept yeah but i think it speaks to how brave charlotte is i mm -hmm. mean she's the one that you know, tracked down her mother all on her own. She went to, she found, she went and found her by bus and whatever. Like she, you know, I think it's kind of like, 
a coming of age for her because she's stronger than, you know, and more, um, yeah, she's stronger and braver than uh, she thought or than Joy thought. And ultimately, she's able to support her mother in doing something that matters, because I think she's going to end up doing something that matters. I could watch that shot all day <laughs> between the cars and the clothes, the bell bottoms. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in the seventies now, you know, before the yeah. caption comes up, you're like, Oh, okay. Things have moved on a little, you know, everything's just so much more loose and, you know, the colors are really, really popping in a different way. Now it's, it's, only been a few uh -huh. years makes all the difference it's so good so great yeah it does feel like we've just entered the 70s and the choices for women are you know are still the same in some ways and i think that you know not to say that charlotte didn't have a right to resent her mother for not being honest and for being absent. But I do think ultimately it, through her own growing pains, it's something she did ultimately respect. I mean, just um, the, the, the irony of this celebration but whether it was in you know Sundance or when the movie opened in 2022, that this celebration was happening at the same time that that you know Roe was being overturned is just I mean, yeah, you know this scene was always intended to be ironic. The burning of those cards was always intended to be like, oh, not so fast. Yeah. We're going to need those cards again. So what was the experience like of, of seeing the film with audiences for the first time when the, when the film uh, was first screened sort of for mm -hmm. the festivals and for the public? Well, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, the first time it was screened at Sundance, it uh, was supposed to be uh, a live event and became a online event, unfortunately. But um, they did have an L.A. premiere here that um, I went to with an audience and um but that was a very uh, subjective view because it was a benefit for Planned Parenthood. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone in that audience yes, was, was the con converted. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it, you know, I think the main thing is that it, um, it's about what women can do when they come together and it's about fighting for agency and awareness and uh, to be part of the conversation. And I think, I think in that sense, it, I think people walk out with a, a sense of warmth and camaraderie, despite the fact that it's a very ominous and like you said, ironic ending um, because of what's happening in the world right now. But I think the message is the same, that women can come together and women can make a difference. And um, hopefully this movie will just be one piece of that conversation that we all desperately need to be having right now. You know, and, and that includes seeing the reality of how it was even when Roe was supposedly the law of the land, how little access there was for so many in this country. So hopefully it will bring all of that into a, you know, into the light. Yeah, that's still a work in progress, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. we, have to, we have to wait to see what happens. Well, thanks very much for joining me to talk talk all over the movie. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Rogue Commentary, a synchronicity production produced and mixed by Sam Ibrahim with music by Oli Oha. We'll be back with another exclusive audio commentary soon, so please subscribe, rate us, and most importantly, tell your fellow film fans that Rogue Commentary is a thing. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for news about upcoming episodes, and if you have any suggestions for future contributors, email us at david at rogue-commentary.com. Bye!